HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Today, we are going to be talking with Sylvia Christian from the South Dakota Stock Growers Association, and we're going to be talking a little bit about the aftermath of Storm Atlas, which swept the region last October, to hear how ranchers are recovering, um, get some details on the storm, and how we should be thinking about that industry going forward. Sylvia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Erin. So I want to start out um, going over kind of some basic vocabulary to, to just make sure that people will be able to follow the conversation. First and foremost, um, stock growers, the Stock Growers Association. Who, who or what is a stock grower? The stock grower refers to livestock, actually. Um, so a stock grower is a rancher, um, the people who are taking care of the livestock out here. And when I say livestock, we primarily here in western South Dakota are raising cattle uh, for beef production, and we also have sheep out here, which are being raised for wool and also meat production. Um, so those are our primary um, livestock that we're raising out here. And if we're talking about those cattle, I feel like you often hear words like a head or a pair. How do we refer to them as individuals or groups, or can you give us a little bit of the lay of the land? Yeah, so a, a cow is usually referred to, um, a cow is just is a beef animal. Um, we refer to them as, as one head um, is, is one animal. And a pair is when you have a, a mother cow that still has a calf at her side that is nursing, and that's considered a cow-calf pair, or refer, we refer to it as a pair. And is there a difference between a, a rancher and a stockman or a stockwoman? Not really. It's kind of those are interchangeable terms. A stockman, um, a stockwoman, a rancher, um, or a farmer, even those are all interchangeable terms. They're the, the people that are responsible for caring for these animals that we raise out here. 
Excellent. And before we talk a little bit more specifically about the storm, can you give us a little bit of a sense of, of the South da- Dakota landscape, um, folks who are raising cattle in this area? What does kind of a typical operation look look and feel like, and how is it different than maybe raising uh, animals for beef in different parts of the country? Well, out here in western South Dakota, we're in an extremely rural part of the state. Um, we have several counties out here that have um, less than one person per square mile of land. Um, so we have extremely rural areas, um, large, large uh, prairie landscapes, just large areas of beautiful green grass, um, and it's perfect for raising livestock. So in a lot of parts of the country, and I would assume in, in places like New York where you get relatively mild summers and good rainfall and stuff, um, you might need to calculate three to four, maybe five acres um, for one animal to get through the summer. Um, out here, um, just because of the climate that we have with, with relatively little rainfall and pretty harsh, uh, long summers, um, we end up needing about 30 to 40 acres for one animal uh, to be able to graze all summer long. And so you have these great big wide open spaces, um, a lot of cattle out there. And um, and a lot of our work out here is still done in the very traditional way on horseback. Uh, many of our producers uh, still ride ride their horses to, to check their cattle and to work with their cattle. Um, we use ropes and, uh, and, and things like that in, in taking care of the animals when we're working with them um, if we need to catch them out there in order to, uh, to maybe, you know, give them some medication or, or, in other words, check on them in any way. Um, so it's still a very traditional way of life. Um, it's a very rural area. Um, a lot of our kids out here in the rural areas are going to country school. There's still one-room schoolhouses where you have uh, classes all going together um, up until eighth grade, and then after eighth grade, they will stay in town in the bigger in the cities um, to go through their high school education. So it's still a, a very um, very simple way of life out here, but a really good way of life on a on a very open and rural area. And would we be correct in assuming that that beef production is often a multi generation? You know, most of the operations are, are multi generation. This is something that's been happening in the region for a number of years. That's right. Most of these ranches are multi-generational. We're looking at four or five generations um, and that have been on many of these ranches. And a lot of the families of these businesses, these ranching businesses, are multi-generational also in terms of who is working them. You'll often see a grandfather, a father, and a son all working together on the operation still today. Um, and there are a lot. We spend a lot of time working with producers and helping them also with generational transition plans in order to keep those operations viable. And if we're thinking about South Dakota as regards to like volume of beef production in the context of production in the U.S., where do you guys sit? Um, South Dakota is uh, ranked, I believe, fifth. I would have to. I'm off the top of my head. I should know that one. (laughs) Um, South Dakota, though, is a relatively strong uh, beef production state. Um, We also are a very um, ranked pretty highly in terms of wool production off of the sheep that we raise here. Um, And in Western South Dakota, certainly. The livestock industry is the primary economic driver out here. Um, the land here, like I said, is, is mostly prairie landscape. And just from a conservation and, uh, and sustainability standpoint, it, it's really not responsible to plow that land under and grow crops here. So most of it stays in grass, and therefore it's raising, uh, raising those livestock animals. Well, now that we have a, a kind of a, a vivid picture of the lay of the land, I want to take us back to October of 2013. And maybe can you walk us through um, the kind of day before the storm and then kind of the day of the storm, just so folks can get a sense of how kind of quickly this kind of dramatic weather event took place? 
Well, in October here in South Dakota, in, in our cattle industry, October is the time of year when most of the cows um, that have calved earlier in the year, um, the calves are being weaned off of those cows um, in order to go to market, um, and the cows are then given uh, the time to uh, to get through the winter and, and not have the extra strain of nursing a calf through the winter. So that's what was going on here in the first week of October. Is most producers were taking the time to gather cattle, um, sort the calves off of them, wean those calves, um, prepare them for market, um, and just kind of doing the usual work that we have going on that time of year. In October here, you know, the days are getting shorter. Um, it's starting to get pretty cool at night, um, and you'll sometimes start seeing frost. We had not seen a frost yet, though, and then all of a sudden we had this weather forecast that was predicting a winter storm. And, again, that's not completely unusual, but our forecast was saying, you know, four to eight inches of snow. Um, it was just supposed to be a quick storm that moved through, and producers knew that our cattle were not prepared for it because we hadn't had any cold weather yet. The cattle didn't have any any extra heavy winter coats yet. They didn't have, you know, their heavy fur or anything. Many of these cattle were in pastures that are suited for, for keeping those cattle in the summer where there's not a lot of protection from wind or other elements um, of winter. And so producers really started taking, doing everything they could to gather those cattle and, and possibly, you know, get them to more protection. But when you're talking about the landscape we have out here, it's very difficult to move those cattle because it's often many miles to get them get them home uh, to protection when you're not prepared for it. Um, so our producers really did everything they could to make sure there was extra feed out, that those cattle were as protected as possible, um, and that the sheep were in, in places where they could be protected. And then that storm moved in, and as the storm started, we first started seeing very heavy rain. We had really torrential rainfalls here. Um, several inches of rain fell in just a few hours. And then the wind picked up and the temperatures dropped, and we ended up having 60 to 80 mile an hour winds sustained throughout the night um, with temperatures hovering just above the freezing point. And then that heavy rain switched to snow. Um, and we ended up, instead of the predicted four to eight inches, we ended up getting a three to four foot of snow. And um, the livestock wandered, a lot of them wandered with the wind um, because they were just kind of overcome by the force of the wind. They would put their backs into the wind and, and just kind of start wandering and drifting as a herd. Um, many of the animals um, had uh, congestive heart failure issues with the cold temperatures and the stress that that was creating for them. Um, the extra weight on their bodies of all the heavy snow and walking through the snow and everything really exhausted them. The storm ended up lasting for about 36 hours. And by the time the storm cleared, we became relatively soon aware of how severe things were. Um, and at all total now, um, we know that we lost over 40,000 head of livestock out here in western South Dakota in that 36-hour period. Wow. And, I mean, I, I think um, it's it's that that number, it's like a little hard to wrap my head around, especially when I think about, you know, the size of each of these cattle and them kind of dotting the landscape and, and so they kind of f fell to weather conditions for a variety of reasons. And as the storm is lifting and the weather is changing, you know, when folks are then heading, heading out to check on their herds, can you give us a sense of, of what they were confronted with? 
Well, the first thing was really just the logistics of trying to move through four four feet of snow. I mean, we had, you know, 30 to 40 inches of snow around uh, the whole countryside here. So the logistics of moving there through that type of landscape, the ground wasn't frozen. It was incredibly muddy. Um, so many of our vehicles were not able to move. Um, many of these producers then tried on horseback to get out, and it was impossible even for the horses to move. So a lot of it, it took even a few hours or several hours for us to even figure out how to get to the livestock um, where they were and where we could assess the situation truly. Um, most of western South Dakota was out without electricity for about 10 days because we had power poles snapped off across the entire part of the region. Communication was very difficult because of that. Um, but really, producers tried as quickly as they could to get out to where they thought their cattle were. Many of them found that because of the, the heavy winds and stuff, the cattle had wandered, uh, so it was difficult to find the animals. Uh, many of these animals had wandered up to 10 miles in the wind and were found on neighboring pastures or, or very far away from where they were supposed to be, so it was hard to locate the animals. Um, but the, the thing that we were really finding as we were starting out where we thought the animals were and then, and then following the path of the wind to where the animals would have wandered to as we started finding really just horrific scenes of of dead animals. Um, you know, there were carcasses strewn across the prairie here. We had um, so many cattle um, died in the storm, and uh, many of them died just where they stood as they wandered across the prairie. Um, and we were finding those individual, um, you know, bought dead, dead animals laying there. And then we often would come up against places where the animals as a herd had wandered into a low spot or something where they had tried to find some protection from the storm, um, but instead they had just you know, piled up on top of each other and kind of suffocated one one another. And so we had these kind of mass grave pits where these animals had, had really, really terribly just in the weather suffered to their deaths. Um, so it was very gruesome in those days after the storm, finding all of that. And really once we realized how much death there was, the next priority became finding the animals that had survived and making sure we were taking care of those um, because there were a lot of animals that survived the storm, but the stress on those animals had been just incredible. And so we really had to make sure we were getting to those animals, getting them the feed and water that they need, and bringing them in, bringing them home to where we could take better care of them. And were there kind of last for the animals that that survived the storm? Um, you know, now that several months have passed, it, are there any lasting impacts for the live animals? Were there any ongoing kind of health issues as a result of the storm, or were you able to kind of nip those in the bud uh, in the first kind of weeks and months after the storm? It, it took a lot of work on the part of our of our ranch families uh, to take care of those animals. A lot of the calves, the young animals that um, were weaned um, either you know by the producers or because their mothers had died, they were under an incredible amount of stress because they didn't have their mother with them anymore. Um, they weren't nursing anymore, and so we had to deal with secondary infections there just from the stress that those animals were under. We had a lot of pneumonia in those animals, so we had to really take care, very careful care of those animals. Um, especially the young ones, they had a lot of those types of diseases um, and infections that they were dealing with that, for the most part, we were able to get under control. Um, and then long-term effects on our on the mother cows, um, you know, the adult animals are really kept here on the operations for breeding. We did have some issues with those animals um, maybe aborting the, the calves that they were carrying, um, and we had some, some ongoing effects there. 
We have also seen some ongoing damage to the lungs of some of those animals because they were breathing in some of that heavy snow that was coming down. So it's been, it's taken a lot of work on the part of our ranch families to keep an eye on those animals um, and to take care of the ones as they were showing symptoms and and showing signs of any kind of additional stress. Um, It's been a lot of work to get them through the rest of the winter. Yeah, I would imagine, I would assume that there would be kind of a high demand for veterinary and, you know, veterinary services. Can you give us a sense of um, what those resources, you know, generally look at and, and kind of how they've been stretched as a result of the storm? That definitely was a big issue. I mean, that infrastructure, we have generally have a pretty good large animal veterinary care and animal health care. Like I said, our industry out here is the animal industry. Um, but there were a couple things that just made that very difficult. First of all, the lack of electricity, the fact that, that the electricity was out for 10 days and up to two weeks in some areas. Uh, made it difficult for communications in some places. Um, and then also our veterinarians are used to being able, usually they schedule out their, their time pretty well, but there was such a high demand uh, for them that it really put a lot of strain on them. Um, but I give them a lot of credit. Our state veterinarian here in South Dakota also did a phenomenal job of helping coordinate those resources. Um, we did all we could to also push information out to producers, whether it was through radio or other means of communication, to let them know what signs to look for, um, what types of things they needed to be paying attention to um, so that they could catch the symptoms early themselves. Um, And many of our ranch families here, um, you know, because they care so much for their animals and spend so much time with them, are also very good at diagnosing uh, symptoms and making sure that they're taking care of those animals, even if a veterinarian isn't immediately available. So um, it was was really a, a team effort in that sense. We also had a couple of our of our pharmaceutical companies um, here in South Dakota um, stepped up to the plate and, and provided free of charge and even helped deliver um, antibiotics out to these ranches so that we could make sure those calves were taken care of and the infections didn't get too bad and that kind of stuff. So um, it was it was a big group effort, but but we really did I think a good job of making sure that our families were equipped to deal with with what they were handling and taking care of their animals. Yeah, and I think kind of looking across all the different areas that there was a need for a short-term, a medium-term, and a long-term response, that, that there was positives and maybe less positive outcomes from the storm. And I'm wondering, maybe you can paint us a little bit of a picture of some of the, the financial relief and the options for farmers um, in, and what's working in that space as, as they're looking to rebuild those herds and, and what's a timeline um, to get back to, to, you know, to get back to normal for some of these ranchers? Well, really the first thing after the storm cleared was we had to deal very quickly with some immediate needs. And as gruesome as it sounds, and it truly was, we had carcasses on highways here in South Dakota. We had, you know, dead animals littering our landscape out here. Um, We had all of these live animals that still needed to be taken care of that were really the main priority, and and yet there was so much other work to do. so really the immediate needs that we dealt with was coordinating plans for, for cleaning up and helping those producers have resources to clean up. We had an amazing response uh, from friends in, in areas surrounding this area that came in with heavy equipment, um, backhoes and bulldozers and everything else, and helped us um, get through that really ugly process of cleaning up so that that could be done. Um, but there was also a huge emotional toll that was taken on these families. Um, you know, the, these ranchers... Um, 
they spend a lot of time with these animals. They care deeply for them. You have so many stories of even a herd of, of six or 800 animals. You'll have an animals in there that you remember, um, stories about them. You know which ones are the good mothers and which ones maybe have, have a little bit different attitudes or whatever. Um, and finding those animals dead and finding so many of them dead um, really left a huge emotional toll on the ranchers and the families that care for them. And so that was um, really the, the mental health was something we were immediately very worried about as well. And so we coordinated a lot of, of scientific information in terms of dealing with that cleanup process. But we also held a lot of community gatherings, um, it just hosted meals, free meals that people could come to. It was a good opportunity, I think, to get producers, these families, to come out and see each other and, and get a hug and get a hot meal and a chance to maybe smile um, when they haven't been able to do that for a while. Um, so that was kind of the immediate needs that we that we dealt with and, and tried to, to handle for a lot of these families. And then looking forward from there, you know, we didn't have a farm bill at the time, and many of these producers don't have access to to good insurance programs, and so we we were looking to the farm bill for some relief in helping these family businesses get back on their feet. Um, so we were working on that very hard, um, and we were really appreciative for the support that came from um, from Congress in terms of passing the farm bill so quickly. Um, and then the other really interesting and, and kind of miraculous thing that happened in all of this is that there were so many people across the country who saw the pictures and heard the stories of what our families were going through here that they started making donations and sending money and so we established the ranchers relief fund um, which became just a huge project for us and at the end of the day with donations that came in um, we raised 5.5 million dollars that have gone back out it's already been distributed back out to the ranch families that were affected by this storm and has been able to help them to um, cover costs that they had from cleaning up after the storm, but also help them to purchase back livestock in some situations and help them to cover costs of, of damage to their fences or barns that was caused by the storm. And I think for the most part it also provided a lot of hope to these ranchers who felt so desperately lonely um, in the days after the storm that they didn't know that anybody even knew what was going on here. Um, and we raised that kind of money to help them it also showed them how much people really care and that they had a lot of support for what they were doing out here. Sylvia, we are going to take just a, a brief break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about um, how consumers might be expecting to feel the impacts of the storm. So hang tight. We're listening to the Farm Report, and we'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. All right. Thanks so much for hanging with us. You're listening to The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. We are on the line with Sylvia Christian of the South Dakota Stock Growers Association, and we are talking about Storm Atlas, which swept the region last October. So, Sylvia, I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, for a consumer like myself here in Brooklyn or folks across the United States, 
Um, are there are there ways that we're going to feel the impact of this kind of like dis- disruption in the beef supply, or are things that we're going to feel or should be looking or expecting to feel in the in the coming months? Well, I do think um, that I, I appreciate you guys having having us on the air here and talking about this too, because I think it's important for people to understand that where their beef comes from. And here in South Dakota, we're really kind of the first step in that supply chain. We're raising the calves that then go on to eventually grow into the animals that that provide the beef at the grocery store, and. Um, so this is kind of the first step in the supply chain. And currently, I know we're having a lot of conversations in this country about beef prices, and uh, that's partially because of the national uh, supply. Um, we are we have the smallest cattle herd that we've ever had in the country. Um, and that is a lot to do with Mother Nature. The droughts in Oklahoma and Texas over the last few years have really led to uh, some shrinking of, of our cattle numbers here in the country. And, of course, supply and demand uh, at that point also, uh, you know, teaches us that, uh, that that makes prices go up, and we have seen that at the grocery store. Um, the loss that we had here in western South Dakota, while we are dealing with over 40,000 head of, of cattle and sheep that were lost, um, that really represents a relatively small percentage. I mean, it, it is less than 10% of our livestock herd here in South Dakota. And with um, the the markets being as solid as they are, while they're high for consumers, that also means that they're good prices for our producers, which makes a really good environment for them as business owners to to try to rebuild after this storm. So I'm very confident that our producers here in western South Dakota um, are going to be able to recover from this and that they're going to want to recover from it. We That's what we do out here is we raise, we raise beef animals, and we're proud of what we do to take care of these animals. And I'm sure we're going to come back. You know, consumers there in, in New York, I, I think you we are going to see some higher beef prices for a while, but I really hope that people who enjoy their beef and enjoy eating a good steak are going to going to stick with it and continue to purchase those animal uh, purchase those products because it really that's what um, will help us rebuild out here, making sure that that market stays high and that there's a demand for the product that we're producing um, is is really the biggest thing that that you can do to help us out here. Well, and kind of touching a little bit more on the business end of things, I think you know. After you get past the uh, the immediate kind of shock and devastation of the carnage and and dealing with you know disposable disposal of carcasses and and making sure that you're getting your herd kind of healthy and back you know ultimately all of those carcasses represent what what essentially had been money in the bank for some of these producers and and when you think about kind of uh, wealth accumulation or or resources. Um, I, I know in some of the articles I've read that there are a couple of questions you should never ask ranchers. One is, you know, how many head they are raising and, and how big their ranch is. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the financial dynamics uh, of this loss for producers um, and, and how we should be kind of sensitive to those to those issues um, and, and thinking really about farming as, as a business endeavor. Um, you know, what are things that folks outside the area should keep at the forefront of their mind when they're exploring this topic and asking questions and, and you know, having conversations around it. Well, that's really true, Erin, and I, I appreciate your question there. These are small businesses. These are ranches. They are family-owned businesses. They're multi-generational, um, and we certainly love what we do out here, but they are businesses at the end of the day, and the profits that come off of these businesses are what, what put 
our children through college and what pay the taxes here in South Dakota, uh, keep our infrastructure going, and, and they are small businesses in that sense. Um, so the loss, the losses incurred here were not only one-time losses the way that, that I think a lot of businesses, whether it's a bakery or a jewelry store or whatever it might be, um, would, would feel after a loss. Um, but because it's production agriculture, you know, these calves are born uh, once a year. Um, we have a calf born off of a cow. And that animal is then kept for most of the year until it is sold. And so you really get paid once a year in agriculture uh, when your crop comes due, whether that's cattle or your, your grain or your vegetables or whatever it might be. You get paid when that, when that product is ready. Um, and so we really, with this storm, the storm hit really the week that payday would have happened for a lot of these families. And so that was really part of the of the immediate devastation and, and the need to raise some money to help them out is because they lost their paycheck for this year. But beyond their paycheck for this year, the loss of the of the grown of the adult animals really represented a loss of their ability to have a paycheck next year. Um, because those animals, uh, those adult animals would have raised a calf this year that would have been sold this fall, and those animals that died represent a loss of income moving forward. Um, so the income potential was lost there, um, but purchasing those animals back is certainly an option, but um, a live cow right now, uh, to purchase one of those animals back to replace an animal like that um, costs about $2,500 a piece, and some of these ranchers lost um, upwards of 100 animals um, on their operations, and so the cost of replacing those animals is really pretty extreme um, and makes it, makes it very challenging, and that really cuts into our economy here in western South Dakota as well when those dollars aren't circulating. So um, it's been, you know, it has a multi layers. I think the way that any, any disaster that affects a lot of small businesses um, has a lot of, of layers to it. Um, but that economy is certainly a reality out here beyond just the emotional hole uh, that this took on, on many of these ranch families. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that I always try to push to the forefront of, of folks' minds. With When you're dealing with the agriculture, you're not going to some, you know, magic shop where you're pulling, a, you know, a fully grown or functional cow off the shelf. You know, these things uh, are a process that takes time. There's a, a real kind of bio, biological reality. And, and one of the other components that I, I want to just touch on briefly is, um, the genetics, because I know, um, you know, when you're looking specifically at your herd, you know, you're selecting and breeding animals for certain characteristics or, or traits. And so there is, too, a loss of this, you know, genetic pool for those farms. I wonder if you can touch on that a bit. Yeah, a lot of our ranchers out here um, are very proud of the genetics they raise. Um, and we are very careful in the beef industry as well to select animals that are going to be able to withstand the weather that we have out here. But then at the same time, um, we need animals that are going to be good mothers that can raise their calves well um, to produce good milk for that, and that at the end of the day also provide good meat quality for the consumers that we're trying to feed. Uh, that's probably first and foremost in our minds that we're selecting uh, genetics that are producing a good um, a good product that we can then sell to the customer. And, uh, and that takes a lot of time. Um, a cow's gestation period is nine months. It takes another nine months than to raise that animal to be weaned off of the cow. So there's that biological time that goes into all of that and that cycle uh, to grow those genetics takes a lot of time and a lot of commitment from these producers. And so losing so many, especially of the adult animals, um, really was a loss of the genetics that we've built up over so many years. And that's something that will be very, very difficult to replace and certainly will take a lot of time. And, um, you know, I think it's going to take two to three, maybe even four years until a lot of these ranches have 
stocked back up, not only in the number of animals that they had on their place before the storm, um, but certainly before they're able to get their genetics back into a, a situation where they're, they're happy with them um, and are able to produce at the level that they were. Well, I know I, one of the other frustrations I felt like I was picking up on was um, lack of kind of media coverage in the immediate aftermath of the storm. And I'm wondering, has that improved at all over the over the course of the last six, eight months? Are you seeing more attention um, being drawn to these issues or and then, you know, possibly what would you hope for, you know, going forward? It was very frustrating um, to see the lack of coverage because, you know, there have been a lot of natural disasters in our country um, over the last uh, few years, and there's often immediate and a lot of media coverage, whether it's it's for some of the, the terrible tornadoes we've had or, or the hurricanes or things like that. This was really a natural disaster of those types of proportions in our world, and it was very difficult to see any any real media coverage on it. And really our frustration there was that we needed people to know what we were dealing with. This was extremely devastating to us, and and the world and our country really needed to know what was going on out here. Um, That has improved some uh, through shows like yours and others. I think it's been really helpful and empowering to know that that people do care and are listening to what's going on out here and are also interested in where their food comes from because that was the second part is that when we did get some media coverage, it was sometimes challenging to really help people understand what it was that we do out here in western South Dakota because um, we uh, were pretty remote and not a lot of people know much about South Dakota besides that Mount Rushmore is here. Um, And so it's been it's been an interesting um, experience there too but the coverage we have had has really been very positive and we are also really appreciative of the people that have wanted to learn about what's going on out here and where their food is coming from um, and how much care these producers and, and ranch families are giving uh, to raising these animals well Sylvia thank you so much for taking some time out today and, and we definitely look forward to kind of continuing to follow this story and I know we were lucky enough to have um, someone from our team out to, to visit recently, so I would definitely encourage um, listeners of the Farm Report to stay tuned to our homepage and, and you know look there for continued coverage um, and some more conversations with some of the ranchers impacted. Now, if folks want to learn more about your work, they can definitely visit you at www.SouthDakotaStockGrowersAssociation.org. Is, is there anywhere else that you would direct them in the interim? Yeah, we also have um, a pretty active Facebook page, both for South Dakota Stock Growers Association and for the Ranchers Relief Fund. And there are some great stories and news clips and different things on there as well um, that have some stories of some of the ranch families that were affected by this storm. And uh, and you can kind of get to know some of those families through that. I would encourage people to do that. Excellent. Thanks so much. We really appreciate talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.